All right. You eat this apple? It's a peach, Olga. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it, these are not apples? <laughs> sorry. How guys. do you like these apples? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the enviously young, impeccably hip, and flawlessly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello, everyone. And Olga Segura. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Yeah. I'm super excited that I didn't have to read that intro this week because <laughs> you make it look really easy, so I'm glad that you're back. Did you miss me? We did. We did. Which is why we called I you on vacation. You too. <laughs> Zach was like, eh. Nah. I don't have feelings. <laughs> It's really good to be back. Um, what's on tap this week? Sarah? How about you answer this question, Ashley? Okay, I will. It is sangria, white sangria, because we're reaching the end of summer, so oh, you're right. we got to drink a, it while yeah. we can. It's true. So this is my recipe. It's uh, brut cava, uh, vodka, peaches, blackberries, and club soda. So It's, it's really a, delicious. It's a drier, not so sweet sangria, but that's how I like it. I'm into it. I'm a fan. I did, in fact, make this sangria in our coffee pot because we did not have an actual pitcher or carafe. <laughs> So. It's like a type of carafe. Well, it's like it a is. Mr. Coffee. We'll tweet a picture of that because it was pretty good looking. I'm going to fall asleep <laughs> because I didn't have any coffee this because, of it, but. because the, the fruit was soaking in vodka. Right. So. Priorities, Zach. Just kidding. I, I might have had some of that at 10 a.m. <laughs> so this week we're talking with Liz Brunig, who is an assistant editor at the Washington Post and a contributing writer at America. And I think all three of us would agree. The queen of Catholic Twitter. Absolutely. Oh, right. yeah. I'm just like her pace. Like it's like every Every hour. She never logs off. No. Nope. That's the secret. How can one person be so witty and smart every single day? I have like a really good I can teach you sometime, Olga. Oh, come on, Zach. Zach, but you're, you're Zach, your ratio is nowhere near as good as hers. I'm sorry. All right, moving on. <laughs> okay. Yes. Moving on to Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Olga, what's our first story? The Pauline Fathers of Doylestown, Pennsylvania, are trying to get young people to care more about Marian spirituality. So they set up this project where the selfie generation, as they are calling young people, you have I to take offense to that. <laughs> um, well, you're supposed <laughs> to take a picture and send it in so that they they're building this large mosaic of the of Mary that's going to be unveiled on September 10th. So they're kind of asking everyone to send in a picture. You can send it either by snail mail or electronic format. So this is the way that they're hoping to get people involved. But the primary way is snail mail. And th so I had a couple of thoughts on this. One is that good on the church for trying to right, you know, right. be in a medium where young people are, like selfies, Snapchat. Mm -hmm. But then when mm -hmm. you try to like, it's like asking them to, to fax it in. Right, <laughs> yeah. Like either really commit to the digital format or, I mean, like, where do you buy stamps? Post office. Yeah, where's the nearest post office? Right next door to right. our offices. Listener, I will have you know, <laughs> when I asked this question in prep the other day, we were stumped. So, Stamps.com? Stamps.com. Do you want to sponsor us, Stamps.com? Stamps.com. <laughs> What's next, Zach? So, on Monday, a judge refused to order a Catholic school to accept two girls who were denied re-enrollment after their parents sued the school to get one of the daughters on the boys' basketball team. This story is crazy. This is yeah. very crazy and way more intense than this lead implies. Okay, so uh, basically this Catholic school in New Jersey was like, you parents have been too meddlesome. Your kids are not allowed to come back to school. It all started when 
uh, parents were abusive, emotionally abusive, allegedly, towards school administrators once their son was not on the junior high valedictorian list. Yeah. They, they uh, said that if he did not make the list, that the mom was going to go like look at his grades like into the calculation of his gpa yeah. like grade by grade assignment um, by assignment yeah so that was that was the first you know what you know one one yeah a little get, bit of can, helicopter people, yeah. parenting people you, fired up yeah. yeah but then the girls basketball team was disbanded the junior high girls basketball team and so like any parent who is invested in their kids playing sports year round and taking away their youth from them wanted to make sure she was still able to play. And so they demanded that she be on the boys basketball team and the school said no. But then actually Cardinal Tobin of the Archdiocese of Newark, they sued the school and then Cardinal Tobin stepped in and said, no, let her play on the boys basketball team. And she did. Um, But then it just kept piling on and on and on with the emotional abuse towards school administrators. So eventually they were just like, "Mm, that's fine. You can play on the, uh, basketball team this year, but next year your, your kids are not allowed to come here. This is really awful because they're trying really hard to get involved in their kids' lives, but this is nowhere near in the interest of their children. Like, can you imagine having to deal with your parents, like getting you essentially thrown out of the school that you love and have friends at? Yeah, this no, is- and like they they had a second lawsuit in which they not only sued the school but a bunch of other parents because they allege that their daughters were facing abuse. Um, and harassment at school because everyone was like, you guys are disrupting our community. And so other students took it out on these girls. Apparently, like, the diocese in the area, like, put out this very harsh statement about the family, like, in bulletins and in kids' backpacks. Oh, Jesus. So it got really ugly. And there's, like, no one really came out looking very good. And I feel bad for the kids. No, really ugly. In fact, one of the related stories in, in this is the headline reads, I have been bullied. Nun says of parents fighting Catholic school <laughs> oh, expulsion. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so yelling at the nuns is who, just... Who like... does this to a nun? Oh, man. Those poor kids. So I, it, the reason we brought this story, or the reason I brought this story is because I think there's a fine line between advocating for your children and, you know, abusing the community. And I pray that one day I have the wisdom to know the difference. Yes. So it would be crazy if we did not talk about this this week but the events in charlottesville uh over the weekend obviously moved a lot of us but i um actually what was it like for you you have a very personal connection to charlottesville yeah um so i graduated from the university of virginia in 2012 um i i don't want to make an outsized claim on what happened there just because i spent four years in the city um there are people who are much more affected by it than me, but that said, watching um, white supremacists marching with torches on the lawn that I graduated on, uh, streaked on, <laughs> like it was it, like so many watched concerts on, like that is the heart of the campus. Um, and they went to the chapel right next door to the rotunda where I went to church every single Sunday. Um, and to see to see that presence where I've had so many meaningful moments was um, horrifying and made me very angry and disheartened. What about you, Olga? Yeah, I mean, things like this are always very difficult. I am a woman of color, but I'm a light-skinned woman of color, so I get to navigate the world very differently than my father gets to. Um, my father's a black Dominican man, so the minute I see things like this, you know, it I feel angry. Um, and it's just, it's hard to see people try to defend all of these actions that are happening when I'm just kind of like, these are, 
human beings that look at my family and want to like denigrate their entire existence. So it's been a very hard week to kind of try to balance being a Christian with the fact that I'm angry at the United States. I'm angry that we have a president who chooses to equate white supremacists with activists in Black Lives Matter movement when it is not the same thing. You know, people are fighting to be respected and to be treated equally. It is not the same as someone who is shouting blood and soil. Um, So when I see these faces on TV that, you know, like seeing people try to question the existence of people who look like my father, who look like my boyfriend, it's just, it's not easy. And it just, you know, it's been a rough few weeks and, you know, I don't, it's hard and it's hard to like be at work and try to be positive when you just want to be surrounded by other people who look like you because they get it, you know, they get the emotional burden that these things, because, you know, this happens every year. We see something like this, maybe not a rally, but we see police officers beating and beating um, and killing individuals. So we deal with this every day. So it's just, it's just been very hard. And I have not been positive about this at all. Were you, were you able to find any communities this week? Yeah, I mean, when moments like this happen, I just immerse myself in my family with my other friends of color because as much as other, like my white friends and my white coworkers might want to be supportive, it's very difficult when someone doesn't understand that race is not just something that is, you know, CNN uses to make like this really hot take. Like race is something that we face every day when I come into work, Mm -hmm. when I get on the train. If I don't hear from my father, when I'm supposed to, I start worrying, you know? Um, so I just, the solution is always to just immerse yourself with other people of color, mm-hmm. at least very initially, like nothing else will help, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zach, could you talk a little bit about what the the reaction was from the Catholic Church? Yeah, it's interesting. We, you know, there's sort of this uh, focus on what are the statements that people are making. Um, and so the church is very quick with statements that were out very quick some of they were like pitched towards reconciliation and unity which seemed a little tone deaf um mm-hmm. to some people on twitter um yeah. uh so there was some social media backlash but the bishops to their credit on sunday uh, really updated their statement and very vigorously condemned uh white supremacy and neo-nazism and racism which are you know racism is an intrinsic evil in the church so these shouldn't be difficult things to denounce and name there's not a lot of hesitancy towards other types of sins. And yeah. so being very upfront with this was, I think, important for a lot of people. Yeah. But also, like, there, the, there's such a focus on statements because, frankly, there weren't any, like, Catholic clergy present yeah. in Charlottesville, which was, it, at least that we know of now, but, like, that would have been, no one's, like, pressuring the Quakers on their <laughs> statements because they were literally standing locked arms with the protesters. And so I think there would be less of this, like, parlor room, like, parsing of statements if we had bodies on the like in in the movements yeah. and i think these images matter to people like some of the yeah. m- more powerful movements from the civil rights movements uh, for some yeah. catholics no, are you know, marching with martin luther king mm-hmm, the priests and nuns and like visible catholic symbols marching lockstep with yeah. uh, some of the civil rights heroes and to there were for sure like people of faith in the catholic tradition present yeah um but that lack of uh clerical presence i mean it matters yeah no there i mean there are very powerful videos of clergy kneeling on the streets in prayer uh before these rallies and Mm -hmm. you did not see a roman collar Mm -hmm. um did either of you hear about this on sunday when you went to mass or service i did not i also did not 
No, and I think I, this is the other thing. I think preachers have to deal with whether they're going to scrap the homily they wrote on Wednesday to respond to something that everyone is thinking about that happened on Saturday. Yeah. Um, I was actually happy with the way my priest um, handled it in Brooklyn. He he started the mass by openly acknowledging the events in Charlottesville and saying that we like, we're praying for those people. We, we say this mass for them. Um, and he mentioned, and then we mentioned them again with the prayer of the, for the faithful, but the homily was not, he did not scrap his homily and just talk about Charlottesville. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I think, um, you know, if I, I ask this in all seriousness for the people who complain about their priests, not talking about it in church, did you call your priest beforehand and say, Hey, can we schedule a teach in at the church before or after mass to talk about this? Like it doesn't all have to fall on the priest who are overstretched. Yeah, and but might true, not. but we're also, they're also watching the news the same way we are. So, and to kind of just pretend that you're not going to talk about it. Like, no, I was, so the, he, he, there's a way you can mention it and pray for it. And then, but also not, because I think it's like what Zach was saying. These moments matter because when you have political leaders who are falsely mm-hmm. comparing activists or people who are suffering from this to white supremacists, to hear your priest or to hear your pastor actually talk about this on Sunday, that is important. But does it have to happen at the mass? Can it not happen in a different setting? I think so, but I don't think either of those things happened. And I don't think the yeah, impetus, I, I don't and think the po- onus is on lay people. I think Why not? If, Why does it have to be the priest? Because I think you are ordained as a moral leader within the no, community. You're ordained, ordained to like make the sacrifice of the mass. <laughs> that, is, but there's more than that to being a priest. And I think both. And there's more than like listening to homilies than being a lay person. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, yeah, it's hard to like process difficult things and you... For priests too. <laughs> right, exactly. But when you've set out this path and this is what God is calling you to, you have to act boldly. And like that's on lay people and clergy alike. But I don't think there's, for better or for worse, this is the standard that clergy are held to, right? Part of being the leader is responding to what everyone in the room is thinking and struggling with. So we are pleased to welcome Liz Brunick, a contributing writer for America and assistant editor at The Washington Post. Welcome to Jesuitical, Liz. Thanks for having me on. So, Liz, you recently wrote an article for America about your conversion experience and the role of St. Augustine in that. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I studied St. Augustine in college, um, got very deep into Augustine. um, And then in the UK, when I was in a divinity program, that's when I really started to get serious about, you know, the possibility of converting. Um, And socially, everyone I knew was really supportive. Um, I knew some Catholics in my divinity program um, and, you know, sponsored me in my conversion. Um, But then I also knew some sort of high church Anglicans and some more charismatic Protestants who were also in the same program. And they were all very supportive. The um, Catholic chaplaincy at Cambridge was very, very supportive and welcoming. And this happened around the same time you were sort of reevaluating your political views, right? 
Um, no, I, I, my political views have been pretty stable since high school. <laughs> um, I was, um, I was definitely learning more about politics and kind of maturing more in the, in the kind of focus I had on politics. That's for sure. Yeah. Now I feel like you wear a lot of hats on Twitter, at least your bio says as much, but I think it's reflected in the different like replies that you're in also. Um, what's it like? I mean, your bio's Christian mama ideas, links, jokes, but you're also like very much in leftist Twitter and Catholic Twitter. And what's the, is there an overlap there? There's like a sliver of people, um, who are, who are definitely, you know, kind of in both worlds. So, um, Christian Bo, who's on, um, the democratic Socialist of America's leadership committee, I believe now, um, he gave a talk at the recent DSA convention on, um, Catholic social teaching and radical priests and sort of the Christian left. And he's been very engaged in that. And there's also a, an entire religion and socialism commission that's part of DSA um, of people who are, you know, religious and socialists and are interested in the way that um, those different commitments interact. So there are some people who kind of have a, a foot in both Twitter worlds for sure. Um, have like Twitter and left Twitter do communicate um, quite a bit. Not, not, not always, maybe happily. Um, there have been some kerfuffles, um, but they're at least they're in conversation. As someone who reluctantly joined Twitter because I was working for a magazine, um, how do you you have a very active Twitter and Facebook presence, um, and you come in for a lot of really harsh criticism? How, like, what? Why do you stay on it? What? What? What does it bring you? What do you think you're um, contributing by being on Twitter? Are you ever going to log off? <laughs> <laughs> Never log off. Um, well, I'm on Twitter for a few reasons, and I have considered completely quitting before. Um, but it does help me do my job, and my job is to edit and commission a wide range of pieces. And Twitter really does help you meet a lot of very interesting and different writers, um, people with all kinds of different perspectives, um, people on the left, people on the right, people with kind of, you know, boutique positions that don't fit neither one. I've had a really great experience meeting those people and getting in touch with them through Twitter. Um, you know, it's also the case that Twitter can help you really keep abreast of where the conversation is in terms of what people are interested in reading. Um, and that can help an editor commission because I want to give people information or add knowledge to topics that they want to know more about. And Twitter kind of helps me see what people are thinking about in aggregate. And so it's useful in that way. And then also, you know, there are vast parts of Twitter that are a lot of fun. I, I like, I like memes as much as the next person <laughs> um, joking around with, with people. And, um, I like, you know, getting feedback on stuff I've written that's, you know, very helpful and it's been very constructive and that's all good. So, I mean, all of that is, is pretty nice. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I love how you joke on Twitter and it actually made me realize you tweeted something funny and I wanted to go back to it. Then I went to your timeline and I was like, she deleted this. So you, you delete your tweets every day, correct? All the tweets must die. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what made you decide to do this? So I think Twitter um, has a context problem, right? Where because Twitter tracks what people are thinking about in the right now, when there's something really big going on, like the Oscars or a premiere on Game of Thrones or Trump just gave a speech or something like that, everyone is talking about it, but not necessarily with like reference in their tweets. So people aren't saying like, with regard to Trump's speech, colon, people just tweet. 
And I tweet a lot of jokes about stuff that's happening right now and other things. And then, you know, a few weeks later, not to mention a few years later, it's very hard to recreate that context and say like, well, at the moment we were all joking about this thing, or this didn't have to do with that. It had to do with this. Or, you know, if you make a joke about a politician doing or saying something and then weeks later, something horrible happens to them or they do something really heroic you know, now you've got a proof tweet where it's like, ha, you don't like a good person or you made fun of someone who got hurt. It's like, well, it's very hard to put it back in the context where no one knew that was going to happen. Right. So do you think it's unfair that um, people are retweeting Donald Trump's tweets from five years ago about Barack Obama golfing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there are definitely cases where you can you can say like, well, the comparison is fair, despite the context having changed. Um, But, you know, with people who are somewhat less public than the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, it can be just kind of nerve wracking to worry, like how is this going to look in X, Y years? And so I just made a conscious decision to kind of tweet in the moment. And then that's how the, that's how the tweets exist. They're just strictly of the moment. If we could switch gears a little bit, um, to talk a little bit about, um, you're, you are a young mother, correct? I saw an old Onion article the other day that was uh, millennials are are uh, putting off having kids until it's the right time for companies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and you, you you've had some commentary on this before about uh, the rules around liberalism and elites and when is the right time to have kids. Can you uh, speak a little bit about? Uh, did you feel like it was the right time for you to have kids? Is there a right time? Um, well, I wasn't um, planning on having kids. <laughs> <laughs> I was married and, um, you know, not, uh, you know. <laughs> the, following the rules. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so that can, uh, that can go really well or it can um, go Even really well. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then you get nine months of free birth control. Um, you can't get pregnant. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, I wasn't, um, I wasn't plotting it out. Um, but when we, when we got pregnant, we were, you know, overjoyed and very happy. And there was a little bit of trepidation because we were the youngest people, you know, in our peer group to have kids. We were living in a like sort of one room basement apartment. How old were uh, you? I was 24. My husband was 26. Okay. Um, and so we were just like, well, away we go. I mean, I I look back and I'm amazed at how immature I was. I mean, I was, um, looking at like mobiles and other cute nursery things and thinking about, you know, how sweet it would be to decorate a nursery. And I mean, that thing was covered in body fluids and no time flat. Um, (laughs) I had no idea. Um, what all it was going to mean. And, and yet it meant something really wonderful. I think I'm a much more mellow, happy person. I think I live in the moment more now than I used to. And that I enjoy little things a lot more that I'm less of a neurotic planner because they don't work anyway. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, there were certain pressures not to do it right then, not to have a kid right then. Um, You know, it was kind of unstable period for me in my career um, same thing for my husband. Um, but it all worked out, you know, we worked around it. We were always open about our kid being number one and wanting to work around having family and have some flexibility around 
you know, leave and taking time off to be with her. And, and that's all worked out really well. You you wrote on Facebook about this. Do you mind if, if I quote what you said? I know it wasn't a completely public forum. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you said liberal thought has produced really bizarre norms in the professional class around when it's appropriate to have kids. You don't have to have a million dollars. You don't have to be perfectly emotionally balanced and you don't have to have your shit together. It's fine. Lol. <laughs> what, what drove you to post that? Um, and, and what is it about liberal thought specifically that you think is preventing people our age from having kids? So um, I don't mean liberal as in Democrats. I was yeah. just about to d- <laughs> disclaimer that for you. But I'm glad you did. I use it in the in the sort of classically liberal sense, and yeah. um, and I'm talking about uh, well, when you look at people as sort of atomized individuals who are responsible strictly for their own well being, um, and you expect the state basically to regulate contracts um, and you know take on some defense responsibilities and so on, but but not intervene so much in the welfare of its citizens, um, then people are left with pretty much only the option to try to negotiate their own contracts with their own employers in terms of leave and um, family life. And that is really hard for some people. I'm sure, you know, delaying makes a lot of sense. You know, my mom was older than me now when I was born. Um, So it's certainly not the case that everybody needs to run and start a family as soon as possible. But for people who want to and feel like they shouldn't because they're receiving all these messages about how they don't have it together enough yet, I think it's worth reconsidering. Um, and, and it's worth reconsidering along the lines of, well, just because it's the norms that industry has produced doesn't mean that it actually is going to damage your life or make you a less interesting person or um, impoverish you if you do have a child and you know plan accordingly when you're younger and i also Uh, feel like there's like some like i don't know like poor shaming in that in this mindset too like definitely definitely i mean so the the, it's it's crazy how frequently you see in culture you know if you can't afford kids don't have them but they don't mean you know afford to shelter and feed kids they mean you know if you can't send them to good schools if you can't afford to take time off if you can't have maternity leave at your job and and I think that takes an enormous burden off employers. Employers have responsibilities to their employees to be socially responsible um, and to promote, you know, family life. And so one way I've heard this talked about, because so your your pregnancy might not have been planned, but your marriage was, um, I, I presume, <laughs> um, maybe not. Uh, but like like the capstone versus cornerstone view of marriage, like not talking about like economic or politically, but do you think as Catholics, it's damaging to take society's view as marriage of like a capstone of, you know, having, having your stuff together? Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes some things harder. Um, You know, it's certainly not impossible to sort of, you know, follow the rules and stick with it and, and date for several years, you know, out of college until you have a, way to, you know, kind of combine forces and be a relatively wealthy household just starting out. Um, But it's tough. I mean, it is tough. Um, And, you know, there are certain things that if you get married on the younger side are easier to manage. Uh, Are are these uh, cultural problems or political ones? 
I always see the political aspects of cultural problems. You know, that's just kind of how I'm tuned. Um, but S- same, <laughs> same. Zach is nodding very <laughs> happily. <laughs> but it's a little bit of both. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are strictly societal aspects to it, strictly cultural, but I'm just kind of tuned into the political aspects of it. What I'm interested in what makes it hard for people to get married and have kids younger if they want to. Okay, and, and a lot specifically, of times, what is that? What is that right now? What are the political... Is it well, lack of um, a safety net? Lack of a safety net, lack of um, universal family leave policies, um, a lack of um, available tuition. So people come out of college with lots and lots of debt. If they want to go into sort of professional class jobs, they need those degrees, um, but they end up accumulating tons and tons of debt. Um, so if there were, you know, free public college or something like that or tuition forgiveness, people could kind of get on with their lives a lot sooner. Are you still going to... Love your daughter if she uh, turns into a Republican. <laughs> uh, well, parents will be thrilled. <laughs> uh, of course, I will. I'll just argue with her on Twitter. Good, good. So, Liz, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, our final question. Um, if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, who would it be? Catholic uh, or non-Catholic? Other than Augustine. Obviously. <laughs> I think we got him already. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, Bernie? <laughs> give us the, give us the pitch. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, uh, well, when Dorothy Day? Uh, or do we have we, a rule against repeats? Uh, well, it depends on how good your elevator pitch is. <laughs> I just think, um, you know, she made a, a major impact in the way that we think about service to the core um, in the world we live in now and the sort of harbinger of a new age, a new way of thinking about being Catholic in the world, um, facing the challenges of industrial capitalism. And I think that um, she lived a response to that that was very graceful and very holy. What would Dorothy Day be tweeting about right now? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wonder that from time to time in a a very serious way. I wonder um, if she wouldn't be concerned about the environment um, quite a bit and, and about, you know, monopoly power the power that corporations have and the way they're wielding it. That's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Liz. Thanks so much for having me on. Bye, guys. Bye, Liz. Bye. All right. Now it's time for listener feedback. Um, earlier this week, um, our dear former producer, uh, Wyatt Massey, tweeted a picture of him. Can you describe the picture? <laughs> so this week, our former producer, engineer, superstar, Wyatt Massey, uh, he tweeted a photo of his new backyard, a.k.a. listening space for Jesuitical. And so he's in he's in Haiti uh, doing some very good work. And prompted us to ask the question where do you listen to jesuitical as i don't know where this exists in the wild so yeah and so we got some good answers roberto said usually the hour-long drive to my in-laws every week or two one episode one way another the other way that's great i hope that's like a good (laughs) good way to to get ready (laughs) with the in-laws emily writes in she listens to jesuitical during her morning commute in omaha nebraska uh shelly at work on headphones and bob boyle 
in my car every Thursday when I have a 90-minute drive to work at an outlying office. That sounds rough. And, <laughs> and Mary and Mary Jo, who wrote in, both do it while they're exercising, which I hope we can bring some joy to that awful <laughs> suffering that you have. Awesome. Okay. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Um, I guess I'll start. Um, so if you've been listening to the show for a while, I've mentioned Tatiana and Nick for like <laughs> every other week. I'm happy you've like pointed your attention away from The Bachelor towards to, a, like, real, a love. real love. Yeah. So <laughs> no, I really have. <laughs> No, I won't get into that. But so Nick and Tot finally tied the knot. Yes, they had a hashtag. <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> um, this past weekend, that's why I was on vacation last week. Um, they had their wedding up in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, I was bridesmaid. Um, and I had one consolation that I prepared. And sorry, sorry, Jesuit formator, I'm going to go off script. <laughs> but I'm going to tell the story um, of the parable of the pot stickers. <laughs> Because, <laughs> like, whenever I think about this wedding, I think about these pot stickers, and it's just really stuck with me. So, Tot and Nick were completely uh, self-catering this wedding, mm-hmm. cooking everything, doing all the decorations, all the flowers. And I got there Friday before the wedding, and I was put on pot sticker duty. Me and two Brits, who were, like, a couple beers in, had to cook, like, 600 or, like, pre-cook 600 pot stickers wow. that were going to be refried the next day. And it all seemed, like, very unsanitary. And we were, like, just microwaving them and putting them in bags, and they were getting stuck together. And we're like, this is a disaster. <laughs> and I was like, and we left the venue on Friday and all the people in the bridal on the, you know, tot side, we were going to be at the salon the next morning. And she put it completely in all the groomsmen's hand to, like, pull off this wedding. And it was just, like, such a leap of faith oh, wow. as I've never seen before. Like, if I were a bride, I would not be able to, like, just trust the groomsmen <laughs> to, like, prepare pot stickers, put the flowers out, put the lights up. Like, all when they were hung over the next Saturday morning. And tot was just like, yeah, they you know, they'll take care of it. They don't. We'll still get married. They're dead to me. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we showed up the next the next day at three o'clock and everything looked beautiful. No one got food poisoning. <laughs> and I was just so impressed. It was like it was like the miracle at Cana plus like the loaves and fishes in one one event. And it was just like very much a lesson to me of um what marriage really is, which is like trusting your spouse <laughs> to come through. <laughs> I also love how chill she was like yeah. on her during her wedding weekend. I hope I I'm as like laid back as she seems to have been. It was really amazing. Yeah. All right. What about you, Olga? Um, so I've got a desolation this week. Um, we talked about Charlottesville earlier. So that's, you know, finding out about that news coincided with finding out that my dad, who is a truck driver, who's been a truck driver for several years, Um, was pulled over by ICE agents near the Canadian border. So kind of processing that along with all of the events that have been happening in Charlottesville and just kind of like the news coming out of that has been really hard for me. And it's been, I find it very difficult to just like engage at work this week, engage with my coworkers, and I'm sort of turning into myself and just not feeling as hopeful as I normally do. Um, so that's been, it's, it's been hard. I'm trying to like pull myself out of that, but it's difficult. You know, I work in a white space. So trying to process all of these things in a white space is very difficult. Um, so that I've just not been able to find God in any of this this week. Yeah. I mean, I can, 
it sounds like it was tough, like both dealing with like this national thing that also affects you very personally. And also like when a, something happens to a family member, that's exactly. Cause it's even like, if it was just a Charlottesville thing, I would process it the way we as people of color process these things every time they happen. But knowing that my father was targeted for a very specific reason, just kind of really brought it to the forefront of my mind. And, you know, last week I talked about moving out of New York City. You know, I'm in a relationship and we're trying to move down south. And I'm just kind of having conversations now where I'm like, do we really want to leave the area that, you know, we're spoiled as New Yorkers. New York is very diverse. I see people who look like me. I see people who look like Enoch. And now I'm just like, do we really want to leave New York City the way things are right now? So that's been adding to that sense of desolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Zach, what about you? So this week I have a consolation. I was attending a conference this weekend for the U.S. Catholic China Bureau. One of my beats is the Catholic Church in China. And I love it. And it gives me a lot of hope most of the time. And this conference was in Queens, very far, far in Queens. It was at St. John's University, which is not an easy commute. So I, I was just feeling this whole weekend, like I'm going to spend like six hours of my weekend commuting. That's a bummer. And I felt nervous. It was my first, I'm on the, uh, I'm an associate board member on the board there. It was my first board meeting that I've ever been in ever. So I was like nervous about that and wondering if I had anything to contribute at all. And so I'm going into this meeting with a lot of anxiety and lethargy and uh, but I get there and I see someone sitting in the back who I met like four years ago. Uh, he was a seminarian in Shijiazhong, uh, China, um, <laughs> which is a city that you've never heard of, of seven million people. But the seminary is sort of out in uh, the boondocks a little bit, and we met and have kept in light touch since. And I walked in, I went up to him, and we like had this really great encounter. He's he's now a priest, Father Peter. Um, and so after that happened, I remembered like why I'm here and why I do this work and why I care about the church in China. I don't know. It's just being connected to the global church in a very personal way. And seeing him there was exactly what I needed to get out of myself, um, and focus on the mission and why we were all there. And so that was my consolation this week. Nice. Also, you're a board member. Ooh, look at associate, you. associate board member. That's so fancy. <laughs> fancy word for junior board member. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we done? We're done. Wrap it up, please. All right. Judge Whitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Adult supervision provided by Sam Sawyer, SJ. Engineering by Angelo Jesus Canta. Adverbs by Amanda Jordan. A live studio audience this week provided. Yes. Live studio audience of one with Stephen Grant. Even great. Thank you. Beermeister. <laughs> <laughs> Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show, and you can find us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. And tell your friends about us yes. because we don't want to get canceled. Also, I'm just kidding. They're not actually threatening to cancel us, but they might. <laughs> They so might. So tell your friends. And leave a review <laughs> on iTunes. <laughs> For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis and Olga Segura. We will see you next week. 